All right, first of all, I want to say welcome to everybody from Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. You should be watching this on a Sunday morning, and I can't believe it. Here we are on a beautiful, glorious day in Jerusalem. And uh, right behind me is the Temple Mount. We're on what are known as the series of the Southern Steps leading up to the Temple Mount. And uh, we're so pleased that you could join us. And so I'm going to begin our uh, study in God's Word this morning. It's just a wonderful uh, arrangement of God that the text we're in as we make our way through the book of Acts brings us right to this place, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, on this particular moment. So uh, let's begin here. I'll pray and then we'll get into our time. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the tour that we've had. And Lord, I thank you for every person back in Santa Barbara who's watching this right now. I pray that you'd speak to them and that you'd speak to all of us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I do want you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, and we're going to pick it up where we left off. Uh, we left off at Acts chapter 21, verse 26. Now we're going to start at verse 27. But you guys sort of know the setting, right? The Apostle Paul has finished up what is usually called his third missionary tour. And he's finishing up his third missionary tour by coming to Jerusalem. And it was important to him, we know from previously in the book of Acts, for him to come, he wanted to make it by the Feast of Pentecost. So Paul, as we left him at Acts 21, verse 26, was on the Temple Mount. This great thing right behind me, this large plateau that rises up over these walls and continues where the temple stood and had enormous courtyards on each side of it. That's where Paul was. Now, look, look let me just say, and I'll say this to our group here, and, and uh, you know this, don't you, that we were just up on the Temple Mount, right? And we wished that we could have filmed on the Temple Mount, though we knew we couldn't, right? We knew we couldn't before it started because... The, the Muslim administration over that Temple Mount won't permit it. But that's okay. We knew, we knew we could stand right here. And this place is important all its own. Because even though Paul was up on the Temple Mount, it's a fair question to ask, how did he get there? How did he get from down to up there? Well, the answer is he walked up almost certainly the southern steps that we stand upon right now. Now, you all are sitting on some newly placed tiles that are up over it. Right now, I'm standing on this place that's original. From the days of Paul, from the days of Jesus. They would have walked over these same stones to come up to the temple. Now, I find it fascinating that at one time, Paul was a very prestigious rabbi in Jerusalem. Remember that in his Saul of Tarsus days? when he was the uh, disciple of a very prominent rabbi uh, named Gamaliel. Well, in those days, when he was a rabbi full of power and prestige, and I believe, I could make the case for it, I think, but I believe he was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin even. I don't think Paul came up these steps in the southern side. I think in those days, Paul came up on another entrance that's over on that side of the Temple Mount, the entrance that was there for the priests and the people of power and prestige. That was sort of the, uh, the executive line to get up there, right? This, these southern steps, this is where the common people came. This is where a rabbi named Jesus would have come up and his disciples with him. This is where Paul, now many years after his conversion, this is where Paul would have come up because he was no longer a prestigious rabbi in Jerusalem, right? Not anymore. Now Paul 
was an apostle of the living God, a man who made his, his career, so to speak, out doing the work that Jesus Christ gave him to do. So Paul came up to the Temple Mount. We saw that earlier in Acts chapter 21. He came up to the Temple Mount so that he could help sponsor some Christians from a Jewish background so that he could go with them and perform a purification ritual that they were going to perform. So Paul goes up with them, and in the midst of sort of performing that purification ritual, which actually took several days, at one of those days, he came out from the temple area, now, not the temple building itself, but one of the courts of the temple, right? He comes out of the temple area, and that's where we pick it up right now in verse 27. Are you ready for this? Here we go, verse 27. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. See what's happening here? As Paul is exiting this temple area, there are some people who see him. Now, the people who see him are not from Jerusalem. They're from the area that we call Asia Minor, a Roman province that what today is the eastern part of Turkey. And cities like Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. These were places where Paul had planted churches, but he planted churches there in that area of Asia Minor in the face of a lot of opposition. There were people who really opposed his work. And matter of fact, there were some Jewish people, now I should say there were many Jewish people who received Paul in his message. Many Jewish people in that area of Asia Minor believed, but others did not. And they opposed Paul so strongly, so vehemently, that they kicked him out of towns. They tried to kill him. They ran him from one town from another. And some of these same Jews from Asia, that is Asia Minor, they saw him on the temple. Because you see, years ago, on his first missionary tour, on his first missionary tour through that area, there were many Jewish people who objected to Paul's work. Now, what was Paul's work? Let me just remind you. Paul's work, I would define it in two main ways. Okay, ready for this? Number one, Paul's work was to proclaim a message. Paul went around and proclaimed a message based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us particularly what Jesus has done for us on the cross, right? So number one, he proclaimed a message. Number two, Paul established communities. He started and he built up communities of the followers of Jesus Christ, those who responded to the message he proclaimed. So that's basically what Paul did. He proclaimed a message and he established these communities. Now, these particular Jews from Asia that Paul had run into a place hundreds and hundreds of miles away, they were visiting the temple just like many of the pilgrims who had come at Pentecost time. Now you got to think about that. What a coincidence, right? It would be like you meeting somebody. How about this? Somebody mugs you in New York and you bump into them on the streets of Santa Barbara. Right? You'd be shocked. What are you doing here? You, you just couldn't believe it. They ran into each other on the Temple Mount. And I just have it pictured in mind how the Jews who came from Asia, these purple, so, how startled they were to see Paul. They were like, I can't believe it. We ran this guy out of cities in Asia Minor. We ran him out of Iconium, out of uh, Antioch, out of Lystra, out of Derby. We, we tried to kill this guy and he kept coming back like a cat with nine lives. We can't believe it. And here he is. We can't believe we've run into him here. Now, if they couldn't believe it, you better be certain that Paul couldn't believe it either, right? Paul's like, 
Oh my gosh, I can't believe these people are here. What are they going to do? It's such an awkward situation. You see, Paul was on their most wanted list. They weren't just going to object to Paul and his work. They were going to stop it. When they saw Paul, they weren't just going to say, um, I object, Paul. Would you please stop doing that? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to stop him. So what happens? Look now at verse 28. This is what these uh, certain Jewish people from Asia Minor were saying. Verse 28. They were crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Okay, do you have that scene in your mind? Listen, I just want to emphasize again, it happened just back here. We're just in front of the area where it happened. Isn't that sort of thrilling? You, you people saw, and friends, I'm sorry, I'm not speaking to my friends here in Santa Barbara, I'm speaking to my friends here on the tour. You saw the exact place where this happened. Paul came out of the temple area, probably out of the temple courts, maybe into the court of the uh, Gentiles there, and what happens immediately? These Jews from Asia see him, and they start shouting out, Men of Israel, help! They went screaming for help, and they shouted, Four accusations against Paul. Okay, four accusations. Now, I'm going to speak of the first three accusations, then I'm going to speak of the fourth one. Here are the four three accusations. They said that Paul was against the people. In other words, they said that he was anti-Jewish. Okay, against the people. Number two, they said that Paul was against the law. Right, that was their second thing. And number three, you can see it right there in verse uh, 28. They said that Paul was against this place that's the temple against the people against the law against this place now let me ask you something i think you're probably familiar enough we've been making our way through the book of acts you know something of the apostle paul were those accusations true or false they were absolutely false please understand that now paul did teach that none of those things were enough to make a person right with god that only what Jesus did on the cross for us could do that. And no, Paul did teach that each person should trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. But listen, Paul did teach that belonging to a group like Israel wasn't enough, right? Paul did teach that keeping the rules like the law, that that wasn't enough. And Paul did teach that performing religious ceremonies like the temple service, that that wasn't enough. Paul taught all those things. He told people not to trust in those things and that only the person and work of Jesus is enough. But ladies and gentlemen, Paul was not against the people. He was not against the law and he was not against the temple. No, as a matter of fact, why was he even here? Why did he even walk up these steps, go through the Holy Gate, go up on the Temple Mount, perform that service? Why did he do it? He did it because he was one of those people, because he was at that place to honor the law. He, he was supportive of all of those things in his very actions right at that moment. But look, I, I don't want to leave this, these first three accusations, with just making this point. I'll just make it very quickly, very direct. Are you trusting in the fact that you're part of a people? Are you trusting in the fact that you keep the rules? Are you trusting in the fact that you do religious observance? 
or are you trusting in what Jesus did for you on the cross? Do you see the difference? Listen, no doubt, it's not enough to be part of a group to keep the rules or to perform religious ceremonies. That's not enough. You'll never make it that way. No, no. You have to trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. Now, I find it fascinating, and I don't know, I'm trying to look at the time and see how I'm doing on time and all that. But look, I find it fascinating if I got the time here to make a side point. That very similar accusations were made against Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Right before Stephen was executed by a crowd that was led by a man named Saul of Tarsus, the same man. Isn't it interesting? The same false accusations that got Stephen into trouble and got Stephen executed by stoning are now being leveled against Paul on the Temple Mount. So, these charges were amplified by a fourth charge. This is in verse 29. Okay, read this. Furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That was the fourth accusation. You see, Paul had brought some Gentile visitors with him, and he was walking with these Gentile visitors, and they had just assumed that Paul brought those Gentile visitors with him into the holy place, and Paul would never do that. That was the fourth accusation was also false. Did you know that in the days of Jesus, in the days of Paul, signs were posted which read, and by the way, these signs were posted in both Greek and in Latin. This is what they said, quote, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. You go past here, we'll kill you, and it's your own fault. That's what the sign said. Paul knew this. Nobody had to tell Paul that. Paul would never break that law. He would never defame Israel or, or put a thumb in the eye of observant Jews that way. Never. So that was a false accusation as well. By the way, the Romans were so sensitive to this that they authorized the Jewish people to execute anybody who trespassed where they shouldn't in the temple area, even if they were a Roman citizen. Okay, so you got this thing? These Jews from Asia are screaming out, Help! Help! Get this guy! And then they lay out their four accusations. And what's the response? Look at it there in verse 30. This is thrilling. Look at it. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. All the city was disturbed. Everybody was running. Can you just imagine in those great big wide areas of the temple court that we... We saw what the Temple Mount is today, right? And we envisioned in our mind what the Temple Mount was in Jesus' day and in Paul's day. And we picture now thousands of people rushing towards Paul, responding to the message that these enemies of Paul... You see, the crowd was enlarged because it was the Feast of Pentecost, right? But the crowd was also enraged because Paul's enemies from Asia Minor shouted out lies that the people believed. So what did they do? Look at it there, verse 30. It says that they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. Now, not out of the building himself, because Paul wasn't in there, but out of the temple court area. And then the doors to these inner court areas were shut. And it was like, 
It was like the high security alert. It was like the alarm button was pushed and they were on full lockdown. It's as if the sirens were blaring red alert, red alert. It's like DEFCON 4 out there on the temple grounds. So what's happening in the midst of this? Well, we remember, don't we, that there was a uh, fortress right up on that side of the temple, right? There's that fortress, the Antonia Fortress of the Romans. Now, the Romans had a great responsibility to keep order in Jerusalem, and it was a special concern at feast time. So look at what happens, verse 31. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. I don't know, does this strike anybody as funny, how casually Luke writes this? And as they were seeking to kill him, are you picturing this in your mind? They are pummeling Paul with everything they have. They are kicking, they are biting, they are poking, they are strangling. They are trying to murder him on the Temple Mount, and they're doing everything in their power to do it. They wanted to kill him right there in that outer courtyard area of the Temple Mount. You know, Paul had almost been killed by murderous mobs before. He must have been thinking at that moment, all right, here we go again. Maybe this is it, Lord. Maybe, okay, do you get this? Maybe this is why, well, not maybe, he knew it for certain. This is why he warned me all along the road to Jerusalem of the danger that awaited me. Do you guys remember that? All through this, leading up to this time in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit had been warning Paul. Most notably, he recently warned Paul through the prophet Agabus, that he would be bound in Jerusalem when he got there and that danger awaited him. Keep that thought in your mind. We'll get to it in a little bit later. But Paul knew right now, as he's being assaulted and attempted murder is being practiced upon him at the Temple Mount, he understands this is it. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit had been warning him about. So what did they do? It says there that news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. You see, from that... Antonia Fortress at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, there were typically more than 500 Roman soldiers there stationed, and they were only two flights of stairs away from the Temple Mount. So what happened? Well, it was red alarm on the Temple Mount, so suddenly it was red alarm in the Antonia Fortress, and they dispatched the troops to go do it. Now verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the elders, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. Now, please, people, understand this. The Roman commander didn't sympathize with Paul. The only sympathy that the Roman commander had was for public order. They didn't want riots on the Temple Mount. Because who knows where it would lead to once the people started rioting. So what did he do? He instantly came down and with enough troops, right, shock and awe, put down a bunch of troops, soldiers, centurions, so that the fighting stops, which it immediately did, grab this guy that seems to be the center of the controversy and drag him away. And that's exactly what they did with Paul. But as they dragged him away, what did they do? Verse 33 says that they bound him with two chains. They handcuffed him, probably to two different soldiers. Didn't Agabus prophesy when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem that that was going to happen to him? Paul must have thought of Agabus's prophecy right there, right then. It just hit him. This is it. I'm bound with chains. And then verse 33 says, 
that the commander asked Paul, do you see it there? Who he was and what he had done. You see, amid all the uproar, uh, that's in the next verse we're going to see, amid all the uproar, the commander tried to get the story from Paul. Hey, who are you? What's going on? What did you do to make all these people so mad? He's trying to get the story from Paul. All right, verse 34, look at it now. And some among the multitude cried one thing, and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Can you picture that in your mind, friends? Isn't that really remarkable? They're dragging Paul out, and everybody's shouting. Everybody's saying one thing. Some people are saying another thing. And so when he can't get it, the Roman commander's just saying, I can't figure this at all. Let's get this guy out of here. And they have to carry Paul. It's like, you know, at a concert when somebody does a stage dive and they, they crowd surf, right? Paul's crowd surfing on the arms and shoulders of a bunch of Roman soldiers. They're dragging him out. And all the people, as much as they can, they're throwing things, they're kicking, they're screaming, they're doing everything that they can. This was like a SWAT team or a special forces extraction. They had to get Paul out of there in the midst of all of that violence. And all the time, verse 36, did you see that there? Verse 36 says that the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Friends. They did not mean away with him from the Temple Mount. They meant away with him from the land of the living. They wanted him dead. Away with him. Now listen, I want you to remember something. When this was happening, Paul no doubt remembered Stephen, right? Paul presided over the execution of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. And as Paul presided over that execution, he must have remembered that it happened something like this. Now, not exactly the same circumstances, but I think he might have remembered something else as well. He may have remembered that some 27 years before, a crowd very much like this, though not on the Temple Mount, but just not far from it, a crowd very much like this shouted out the same words regarding Jesus. That is very much the same words that they used regarding Jesus. They said, away with him. Paul is very much following in the footsteps of Jesus, right? So what happens next? Look now, verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, all right, is the movie running in your head? They're about to lead Paul into the barracks. He said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? I love this. Verse 37, Paul's words startle the Roman commander. As he's crowd surfing up on the stairs out of it, as soon as they get him through the doorway, as soon as they're clear from like the rocks and the missiles that are being thrown and everything that, Paul says, um, excuse me, sir, may I have a word with you? First of all, it's utterly striking. The language was a surprise to the uh, Roman commander because the Roman commander assumed that Paul was somebody different. He assumed that he was basically an Egyptian revolutionary. 
He just assumed that. Now, why? Well, he assumed that he was an Egyptian revolutionary because we have records of this from the Jewish historian Josephus that an Egyptian uh, revolutionary led an army of 4,000 men to the Mount of Olives where they declared that they would take over the Temple Mount. I feel bad for our friends in Santa Barbara right now because they don't have the privilege we have right now of looking over at the Mount of Olives and seeing that that's, unless the camera would pan right now and show them the Mount of Olives, even while I'm talking and explaining, that Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us, and we have it here confirmed by the biblical record, that there was a Egyptian revolutionary who gathered an army of 4,000 men and tried to take over the Temple Mount. But you see, what happened was that Roman soldiers quick, quickly scattered the army of 4,000, and that Egyptian guy got away. Now Paul is wondering, or excuse me, the Roman commander is wondering, well, this might be the guy that got away. Maybe this is him. So they come back to that instance, and he says, I thought you were that. He's startled that Paul speaks such good Greek. Right? What are you doing speaking? You can't be the Egyptian I thought you were. But that's not the only thing that I think startled. I think that the surprise itself was also the phrase that Paul used. I don't know about me, but when you read this in verse 37, doesn't it seem far too polite and reserved? Wouldn't you expect Paul to be screaming, help me, please? Isn't somebody going to help me? Don't let me go out there again. Protect me from these people. That's not what Paul says. He says, excuse me, sir, may I bother you for something? May I trouble you for a moment, sir? It just seems far too reserved, far too, I don't know. Anyway, it struck the Roman commander. Now look at this, verse 39. Oh, these last two verses of the chapter, I can't even believe it. Okay, ready for this? Verse 39. But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Do you understand what Paul's saying right there? He's just out of danger. He's just out of reach now of a murderous mob that didn't just want to kill him. They tried to kill him. They lied about him. The false accusations were, were at a fever pitch about him on the Temple Mount. That crowd is still out there. They're still shouting. They're still throwing things. And Paul says to the Roman commander, excuse me, would you mind if I spoke to those people for a few moments? <laughs> but what are you thinking? You see, first Paul identifies himself as a Roman citizen to the Roman commander. Now, that is an important thing. He says he's a citizen of no mean city. He's implying there that he's a Roman citizen, which would have been very important to that Roman commander to know. Now he says, I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he said that, again, I'm just amazed. In the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of all that rioting, the only thing that Paul can think is, Hot dog, here's a chance to preach the gospel. I mean, really, isn't that remarkable? It's crazy, isn't it? Paul's thinking, I've never had an audience like this before. I can't wait to speak to you. And so what does he do? Look at it, verse 40. It's amazing. Verse 40. He says, so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and look, all I can say 
is when somebody does the movie that should be done about the book of Acts. Can you picture this in your mind? There's Paul up at the top of the stairs overlooking the Temple Mount. There's thousands of people who've been screaming and yelling and calling out for his skin. Now, Paul, maybe a couple of Roman soldiers on each side, right? What does he do? He steps out there and he begins to speak. Now, Paul, Paul, in beginning to speak, shows such a clarity of mind that there have been some Bible critics who look at this and they say, it's impossible. You can't take a man who has just been punched and kicked and beaten by a mob, drag him up the stairs, and he could have the clarity of mind to say, I want to speak to those people. You know what? Those Bible critics, they don't understand the passion and the heart of the Apostle Paul. They don't understand, they don't understand if I could say this, the heart that Paul had for Israel. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explained that Paul had such a heart of love for his people, the Jewish people, that he was willing to be damned so that they could be saved. My friends, I don't know if I could say that honestly. I don't know if I could say that to you, that I'm willing to be damned so that another person could be saved. Paul loved his Jewish countrymen so much that that's what he had. I believe, and look, I, I try to tell you when I'm taking it straight from the scripture and, and when I'm speculating a little bit, I'm speculating a little bit here, but but I, I'm, I, I think I have solid ground for that speculation. I don't think I'm walking in thin air. I believe that Paul had it in his heart, and he believed with all of his heart that if he just had the right opportunity that he could speak to the Jewish people and reach them for the gospel. I mean, look, he was one of them. Those people who were trying to kill him, a couple of decades before that, Paul was in their exact place. He was the one trying to kill the people who were bearing witness to Jesus of Nazareth, who he was and what he had done. Paul felt, I know these people. I know how they think. I was one of them. If I only had a chance, I could reach them. And I believe with all of that swelling up in his heart and his mind, Paul was determined to preach to those people. And can you just picture the scene? It says right there in verse 40, Paul stood on the stairs. He motioned with his hand to the people. And suddenly, started speaking to them. Now, the Roman commanders didn't know what he was saying, right? They couldn't understand the Hebrew. But as soon as that mob heard the Hebrew words coming from Paul's lips, everybody fell silent. What is this man going to say? And I'll tell you, I feel I know, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I feel I know that Paul in his heart was saying, this is it, I've got their attention, right? This is the opportunity I've waited a lifetime for. This is it. And he's probably thinking, oh, thank you, Lord. This is it. I'm going to get to preach this. And you know what? A bunch of This is going to be Pentecost part two. Thousands of these people are going to come to Christ. And it's going to be an entirely new day. Thank you, Lord. This is it. This is my opportunity. And so he motions with his hands. He begins to speak in the Hebrew language. And you see that at the end of verse 40? Saying, and what does he say? That's for next Sunday. Oh. Isn't it terrible to leave it right there? This is sort of like a soap opera where you leave with just something just right on the edge. But that's where the text ends. That's where we're going to pick it up next Sunday to see what Paul spoke to them in Hebrew. But I just want to emphasize to you, this was an opportunity Paul had waited a lifetime for. 
Now look, in that standpoint, Paul waiting a lifetime for this opportunity, it all made perfect sense. But in the bigger picture, don't we stand backwards and say, Paul, you're crazy. What are you doing? Who do you think you are that you can preach to a mob that had just tried to kill you, and now you can preach to them? Listen, he wasn't crazy. There were two things about Paul. He was simply a man whose life had been touched and dramatically transformed by Jesus Christ. Right? His life had been changed. No, I, I don't know. I don't know if everybody who's hearing me speak right now, if their life has been touched and dramatically transformed by Jesus Christ. And, and, and I know our video is going to end in just a few moments. But you know what? Uh, Pastor Nate is going to get up. And I'm going to ask Pastor Nate if he would invite people to receive Jesus Christ. If he'd speak to them about their need to repent and believe. Because not everybody's had this profound transformation that so motivated Paul to do something so radical. So that's one thing. His life had been transformed. The second thing, he loved other people that much. That he would bring the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he would bring that message to the people he was willing to pay a great cost for. He was willing to stand before a murderous mob and tell them about Jesus. So, Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the thrill of your word. Thank you for the reality of it. Lord, standing at this place on this day, we're just impressed more than ever with the reality of who you are and what you do. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that more and more people would have their lives transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. We pray that it would happen this very day for those who see this, for those who know this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for our tour. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for this day and this place. In Jesus' name.